All right, we're live. Happy Friday, everyone. Today is January 19th, and this is episode 35 of Get Your Tech On, our show on all things Doxis. I'm Brady Volp, founder of the Volp Firm and Nimbleness. With us is John Downey, the Punxsutawney Phil of Cable. John is also <laughs> on mute, and <laughs> John is also technical expert leader at Cisco Systems. John, welcome back. Glad to have you with us again. It's not February 2nd yet. <laughs> oh, what I said? <laughs> yeah, it's coming up, you know? <laughs> so, so, John, you're over a satellite connection coming to us from, from your new home, right? Correct. Awesome. Uh, I'm a little wary of the latency and stuff, but uh, we'll see how well this does with the audio and video. Okay. Well, we'll see how it goes. Um, also, back with us is Asaf Matatyao of Harmonix, the man in cable who runs it close to the speed of life. As a light. Asaf is also Vice President of Solutions and Product Management, Cable Edge Business of Harmonic. Asaf, welcome back. So glad to have you back with us again. Thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. And finally, new with us is Tal Laffer, sci-fi fan, who also recommends starting to read the Harry Potter book series, starting at book number four. You can just skip one through three. Tal is also Director of Product Line Management at Aris. Tal, so glad to have you with us today and actually tonight, your time. Yeah, thank you a lot. Thanks a lot, Brady. Excited to be here. Don't give away all my secrets at once. <laughs> well, you know, I was really glad talking to you because I'm a huge sci-fi fan myself and you gave me the tip about, uh, yeah, I really was not into the Harry Potter movies, but you said the the, the books are, are really good. So I'm, I'm a huge reader and I look forward to starting reading at book four, Harry Potter. Um, so fantastic lineup today. This is uh, actually probably, the, I think, the biggest uh, lineup we've had for one of our Hangouts and our topic is RFI. Uh, this is really a, a popular topic um, that we've had also in the past. And I'd like to, to kick off a question from one of our readers. And the reason I want to do the question first is we, all, we have a, a huge backlog of questions, but we never, ever get to them because we always run everything up to the last hour. So uh, one of our listeners, Stuart, asks, what are the benefits of moving all IP to the fiber node with RFI other than reduced size in the head end, reduced cooling and power needs, and shortening the distance. Does that mean CCAP architectures will be evolved to DAA? So I will throw, I'll toss out the question and we'll start with Asaf, um, just sure. because you're first on my screen, Asaf. All right. Well, first of all, uh, saving power, space, and being cost effective is, are really important values in the remote fire architecture to begin with. Um, but as you get closer, as you get smaller service group sizes with a remote fire architecture and a node plus zero architecture, uh, you're actually allowing the, the smaller service group to uh, reach higher bandwidth speeds. So you're actually uh, enabling uh, cable operators to increase their speeds to their to their users as well as having higher performance uh, 
um, characteristics by removing all those amplifiers in a, in a node plus zero architecture if you go fiber deep. Um, so lots and lots of benefits. And uh, I'm sure I might be stealing a few of the ideas that the others will be chiming in on, but you also get uh, longer distances and more wavelengths when you go from analog to digital fiber, which is another characteristic of DAA and remote fi. Okay. Anyone else want to chime in? Yeah, I certainly agree. I mean, the, the fact that you transition from analog fiber to digital fiber provides you with much greater efficiency uh, and ability to send out your signals much uh, much more efficiently throughout, uh, again, longer distances. So it improves your throughput to your subscribers. Um, other than that, it provides you to bring in fiber closer to the subscriber, right? We're moving, the transition is to getting fiber closer to the home, up, to, up until fiber to the home. So moving to remote fi actually allows you to add the, um, the extra mile of adding digital fiber almost up to the house of the subscriber, getting you closer to the final goal of, uh, of uh, you know, fiber to the home. Also the ability, um, you know, the fact that you still keep the Mac within the head end allows you to scale it up a little bit more, right? You still have better control of it inside the, the, the head end and you're able to virtualize that, right? You're able to take that functionality and virtualize it and expand it and change it in, in much uh, more flexible rate. Excellent. All right. So, John? So the bottom Anyone line else? for me was the, the biggest problem or hurdle I've, I've seen over the 25 years I've been in the industry has been the analog link being the Achilles heel. The performance is all based on the analog fiber optic link. By getting rid of that analog amplitude modulated, intensity modulated light, and going digital, uh, the performance is much better. The MERs are better. You're basically taking the chipset that was in the CMTS and moving it out to the field. Um, because it's a digital link, you can go much farther, so farther distances are possible. With better MER, you can run higher modulation schemes with Oxus 3.1, so that's on top of everything. But as an RF guy, I also like the idea that the limitation of RF ports in the head end and that limitation now is pushed out to the field. So when we look at service group sizing and service groups, the number of service groups is always dictated by the number of RF ports. Well, there is no RF ports anymore in the head end. It's digital. To do digital splitting combining, you just go from, say, a 10 gig circuit into a 100 gig circuit. Faster circuit. RF, you can't do that. You can't just combine 5 to 42 megahertz upstream with another 5 to 42 megahertz upstream and think it's going to be separate. But in the digital realm, you can do that all day long. And with Moore's Law and faster speeds and cheaper prices, blah, 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 um, we're going to end up with faster and faster pipes, which means maybe less fiber, more wavelengths, but each wavelength could be running, who knows, 100 gigabit per second. So the digital link is kind of the key point to start pushing us further towards virtualization, towards cloud. Um, and giving us the opportunity to offer higher speeds. And I think that's the bottom line, right? Higher speeds. We could say fiber to the home. Yeah, we could do fiber home with our fog, but our fog is still an analog link to regard. But if we can go to a digital link, then that's the way to go. Excellent. I, I like the different perspectives here because um, I, I think that it's unique. Like I, I, I hear, you know, John kind of focusing on the physical layer aspect and you know, John, I, I think both John and I come from more of the, the uh, phi, 
phi aspect world. We both started off as RF guys, um, whereas Tal and, and Asaf are, are are coming in from a, a higher layer in, in the in the realm there. So that's we I think we all bring different unique opinions to it. So uh, that's excellent points of view. Um, so, so moving on, uh, building on this, I'd, I'd like to, to talk about the complexity of, of RFI. So it, I think that is something that we haven't talked about in the past because we think, well, you know, it's, it's, it's awesome there, you know, it, it's, it's a nice technology that we can push out. We don't have, as John mentioned, we don't have to deal with the analog lasers. Um, so that's one less thing to worry about, but are we introducing more complex issues when we have RFI devices or is it, is it just as simple as, yeah, we just push that RFI out there and no, there's nothing to worry about after that. So. Yeah, how? I do think it's really complex, um, you know, to, to introduce a new architecture, no matter what that is, right. When you start up a new architecture deployment, you need to make sure all the different components of that architecture works, right. So it's like a new car. We want to make sure everything works together well. So it's always uh, difficult to, to introduce something new into the network. Um, distributed access architecture and specifically remote FI brings in many more devices down to, uh, to the network, to the, uh, to the places where previously there were only passive nodes, right? So now we suddenly have hundreds of those active nodes out there in the field. We need to be able to configure, provision, do a software upgrade for, uh, monitor, make sure the health is okay. So it definitely, you know, upscales the level of uh, operational complexity in terms of, you know, the needs to manage so many active devices out there in the field. Automation tools are a necessity. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, interesting. You, you, you talk about software updates with a node because when anytime I've worked yeah. in nodes in the past, um, there's just optical to electrical converters and some right. amplifiers and signal conditioning and stuff in it. But software no upgrades more. on an RFI, explain more. So a, a remote FI basically consists of the physical structure, which is the node, and the remote FI device, the RPD, that sits inside the node itself, executing the remote FI functionality. Basically, the FI functionality that was previously residing within the uh, CMTS or the CCAP, right? So when you have uh, you know, the processors, FPGA, that sit inside that remote FI node, they actually have a software upgrade, just like you would do a CCAP software upgrade, right? So when you need to add more features, more capabilities, and you would want to do a software upgrade to that com active component that sits inside the node. So all of a sudden, you have hundreds or thousands of active devices out there sitting in nodes in the street and cabinets on pole that you have to do mass software upgrade for all of them. You need to have the ability to orchestrate and provision all those devices in an efficient way. You can't really count on, you know, CLI commands and, you know, type in manually different types of, um, you know, of execution commands. Not going to scale, right? Sure, sure. So, so John, I remember at uh, SCTE Expo, you were showing me like a small handheld device that you were plugging into an RFI node. Um, is that kind of what? Tal is talking about as far as like, you know, provisioning these things or managing these things? Is that, is that how it's done? I, I think so. I mean, what we were showing at Expo was a, a regular smartphone with an app and that app can be downloaded today. Uh, but today it works with our iNode. So our iNode has uh, intelligent node. Um, it allows you to plug in through a USB, stream spectrum, downstream spectrum, 
set the pad EQ. There's no plug-in pad and EQ. It's actually controlled via software. The next iteration would be you can do that over the network itself. Because uh, who's going to climb a pole with a, you know, a smartphone to set up this, the, the node when I can do it from the comfort of my house? Uh, so that'll be part of the provisioning and setup. I foresee RPDs being pre-provisioned in a warehouse and then actually sent out with the contractors, subcontractors to install. And then uh, we have a QR to that device and it would do a lat long so you could see exactly where that uh, node was deployed. So you already have a pre-provision for levels, uh, the settings, all pre-configured. Uh, the, the contractor technician takes it out, loads on the pole, but maybe because of uh, that pole's in the middle of someone's yard, they have to go one pole back. But at least it will tag it once it is loaded and, and, and installed that I know exactly the Latin long, um, the, what is it, GIS? Yeah, geographical like? information systems. Yeah. So I can have the location of that device, and then I can keep track of it. Uh, even the iNode has some security features. If someone steals it, it basically locks you out. So there's things that you always have to consider with security. And, and you know now you're putting the network out in the field, and can someone hack into it? Um, like someone said, instead of requiring a USB for me to plug in, why don't you do Bluetooth or wireless? I'm like, well, now you're talking security. Right. That makes sense. Yep, absolutely. By the way, the upfront, the complexity I'm seeing, I wish we didn't have this complexity, is we added, when we went from modular CMTS to distributive access architectures, we had uh, a timing server. I used to hate it, the DTI server. Uh, and then I thought when we went to Remote Phi, it was IEEE 1588 timing. So it's part of a standard. We wouldn't really have that requirement, but we do. We have a PTP. Uh, so that still requires a timing server. Hence, it, it's much cheaper and easier to get than from one vendor back in the MCMTS days. Um, but it still adds complexity. You have to set it up and uh, make sure it's ready to go and understand the configurations and stuff like that. Is the timing server, um, and I'm digressing here, is the timing server still like a Symmetricom timing server? But, I mean, you said it wasn't. We're not... And, and I'm, I'm <laughs> since <laughs> I'm the the agnostic guy here. Um, is it is it no longer a Symmetricom timing server, or is it is it just from someone else, or is it think, vendor dependent? I think Symmetricom might have been sold to one of the companies that does provide the PTV. It's Microsemi, mm -hmm. uh, maybe. Right. And the other yep. one is Adva. Adva. Yeah. There's, so there's a couple board. vendors. Well, Before there was like one vendor. Tao, go ahead. Yeah, there's the Silicourse as well. So there are a few of them offering different types of solutions uh, from a server to a potential uh, SFP plus kind of device that would fit into, uh, you know, one of the chassis or, um, you know, that are the CCAP core, basically. Um, it does add complexity for sure, right? It's yet another device that you will need to manage and provision, make sure it works, make sure it synchronizes. So it adds a little bit of a complexity, but you know we're thinking of more uh, elegant solutions to try to make it uh, less of an interfering uh, problem. Cool. I like the fact that we're not tied though to just one vendor that provides this timing server, <laughs> yeah. and that is your only solution. Thank you. <laughs> we will charge you whatever you charge you whatever you want. Um, <laughs> so Asaf, um, what are your, what's your input on, on this, on, as far as like the complexity and, and some of the issues that you're seeing? Well, it, 
I think it's an evolution. You know, it's MHAV2 for a reason. And um, Doxus is complex. Oh, sorry, what what does that mean? What is that term? MH modular head end architecture. Modular CMTS was built on a technical report in in Cable Labs called MHA. There wasn't a V1 to it, but now that there's a V2, you had a number. Um, and it's the evolution of that. And um, there there was, I would say, a a um, an inflection point of when that made it relevant is when you had silicon out there or FPGAs out there that could do the full spectrum. Because once you separate the physical layer from the upper layers, you want to put it out there and have it live a long time. You don't want to replace these things out in the field. And now that we've got a full spectrum, Doxis and the downstream, 3.1 and the downstream and the upstream available as basically commercial silicon, um, that's something that could be separated very easily, number one. Number two, in terms of the protocol, it really is an evolution of of modular CMTS. We use the DEPI um, plane and control plane there. We call the DEPI and DEPI control. And over here we have DEPI, UEPI, the use for the upstream, and GCP, which is just a newer version of the DEPI control plane. So an evolution there as well. Um, but we're basically taking something that was, you know, by all, by all regards complex, DOCSIS is complex and evolving it in a way that allows us to take something that is slowly changing, that's long lasting in the field, um, the node and separating for things that hopefully are faster evolving. You know, the software, if you have a virtualized approach in the head end and a CMTS core, you can have those things uh, change very quickly. With regards to the software upgrade, it's a great point. Those are active components for sure, and, and those protocols need to be digested in the node. Um, but there's another active component out of the field that is, in, is even deployed in a much greater magnitude, which is the cable modem. And in fact, there's some operators who are doing software upgrades to their cable modems very regularly, um, at least uh, weekly, if not more frequently, and very successfully. Um, and and certainly, I would I would look at modular CMTS and the and the frequency of updates to the to the um, universal edge qualm, right? To the uh, to that piece of it. it, it was very infrequently upgraded because the physical layer isn't changing very fast. So you have to have the capability to download software to these nodes, um, but it shouldn't be changing. And when they are um, needing to be changed, it's something that's simple and straightforward and really well-defined, as well as secure. Cable Labs took, uh, took a lot of steps to making sure that it's secure and, and um, well-defined, um, learning from its great experiences with the cable modems already out in the field. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of thought around that. Uh, already in the industry, and it's proven out in the field as well. Um, so, so when you mean secure, uh, security in the RFI, like what are what are some of the things that we have to worry about from a security standpoint? Well, you got encryption. Doxus has its natural encryption, but also security. Modems have certificates, right? They get issued certificates so, uh, that are mapped to their MAC addresses, and and so do remote by devices. So these things uh, are out there to make sure that they're not spoofed, that the link is encrypted, and, and that um, that basically they're known entities, right? Uh, so somebody can't just put something out on a pole and, and expect to get service. Um, so that, that we need security and encryption and authentication, not only uh, for, for cable modems, but also for remote by devices. And again, we're leveraging known known techniques out there that are well used and applying them to this uh, to these devices as well. So th does this tie back in, John, to what you were talking about as far as like 
if someone steals an RFI device, and, and we know this happens, I mean, people steal nodes, they steal amplifiers, they send them to other countries and get deployed. I mean, I like that concept that someone steals my RFI device, it's, it's not going to be usable. So that, that reduces the incentive for people to steal RFI devices and start stealing equipment. Is, is that something, I mean, that's real, right? Unless, unless they steal for the pressure, precious metals. <laughs> that's a different story. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I like that concept. And, and is that kind of tie back into what Asaf was just saying, that it's almost like a cable modem with a BPI plus certificate where if it's authenticated to a particular, does it get authenticated to a cable operator or to a CCAP? How do, is that essentially what's happening? I mean, it would have its own uh, MAC address or, you know, identification that is then talking to the core. So you have your CMTS or CCAP core, CMTS, or it could be a virtual uh, data server. Uh, but that ID has to be tied back. Um, so I don't know all the details into that side of it. But yeah, there's, it's not like you can just throw an RPD out there and think it's going to work at all. Yeah, I, I think the major, you know, catastrophe scenario that we're afraid of in this in this regard is that somebody will spoof the remote find node. And imagine somebody pretends to be a remote find node that got access to the Mac core, right? To a big box that can serve up to sixty thousand, ninety thousand, a hundred, a uh, hundred thousand subscribers, and they got like a full open, you know, gateway to that big system. They could take it down, right? We're basically with the remote file out there in the field, we're punching a hole in our so-called security system and allowing people, if somebody spoofs a remote file, they can just get into the E6, get into the sorry, the Mac core and be able to sorry. <laughs> and be able to you can say uh, E six thousand. We can do I anything know. here. Yeah, it's automatic. <laughs> I don't even think about it. Um, you can just get into the Mac core and be able to take down everybody else, right? Take down ninety thousand, hundred thousand subscribers potentially even spy on them, right? You could potentially take a look at this traffic that they're getting. So we really need to make sure that nobody can can spoof an E6, uh, uh, I'm sorry, remote file. Now I'm not gonna be able to stop saying it. Oh my God. <laughs> it's uh, all good. We're all friends yeah. here. We need to be sure that nobody can really spoof a remote file node. So basically we have a certificate. We got a couple of ways to secure that. So there's a uh, an operator key that is there. The operator configures that and downloads that to the actual remote file device so that the operator is has uh, also got an identification uh, versus the remote file device. And we also have um, the Mac core is able to identify the remote file device that is connected to it and verify it. So unless there is um, you know, this dual handshake using standard pr protocols for that handshake, there's not going to be any identification uh, for both sides, right? We could also, somebody could also potentially spoof the, the Mac core, right? So both sides of the equation, both the Mac core and the remote file, both need to be authenticated and verified such that nobody, there's not going to be any middleman attack in that scenario. That, that's, that's really, really interesting. I had never considered the security aspects of that, that that would even happen. Uh, I mean, to <laughs> go well beyond... The, the normal security issues that we have lots of right. security is huge in the news security is huge everywhere, but this is yeah. just adding another layer. Are there other types of concerns that RFI introduces? Um, I mean, with security is one aspect, but I, I would imagine there's a certain type of time that it takes for the RFI to register and do this type of handshaking. Um, 
what how much time does it take the RFI device to register with a CCAP? Relatively quickly. And um, yeah, I mean, the protocol is there and it's relatively quickly. It's, I think the long pull in the tent and how long it takes an RPD to come up is the, is the, is synchronizing with the 1588, the IEEE 1588, and depending on how that's configured. Um, and, but other than that, it, those things come up very quickly and it, and it happens when it gets powered up. So generally speaking, it, it's a pretty fast process. I like how you don't put a number on it. Very <laughs> <laughs> fast, very relative. Put a number on it. Uh, fair enough. Uh, we've experienced uh, around three minutes. And, yeah, and I don't know how long it takes for folks to wire it up on a pull and connect power uh, when you think about it from a strand-mounted experience. But three minutes for a technician who put something on a, on a strand is a pretty insignificant amount of time for them. Time it takes to install it. So if if it takes three minutes to come up, uh, I mean, on the first time on a power outage, what happens if there are like network glitches or anything? Is there anything that would cause the RFI to go offline and have to re-register? Yeah, potentially that, that could happen. You know, if you lose connection to the Mac core or to the aggregation router that sits on the way, potentially, yes, the remote file can reboot and re uh, kind of re-register. So you would say it for, for a cable modem. Um, the registration process is basically establishing the tunnel towards the Mac core of uh, the GCP control that Asaf mentioned that needs to get established so that traffic can start streaming. That happens very, very fast as well, right? So it should be you know, almost instantaneously when you have a disconnect that the new RPD, you know, the RPD will come back uh, just like a new one and re-register to the Mac core. What other things should operators be thinking about like when they're thinking of deploying RFIs? I, th I think you started a good segue there from complexity to hurdles. I see would be um, you're replacing all the RF and head end out to the field. So what else replicates or produces RF that you need to now replicate out in the field? Sweep signals, uh, leakage detection signals, uh, out-of-band set-top box signals, uh, return path monitoring equipment. There's no RF in the head end. So we've talked about this. You support those services and do you even need to have those services anymore? It's a smaller targeted area. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. And those as those will are being addressed as we speak. Um, the chipset in the node, the RPD, has to produce the RF. So video qualm, DOCSIS qualm, DOCSIS 3.1 um, qualm, um, out-of-band signaling, could be FSK, BPSK, whatever, QPSK, whatever happens to be. Uh, CW carriers for leakage detection, if you're still doing that. Uh, BRF spectrum and send it back on a digital link so I can process it. Uh, so all those things have to be supported. Uh, almost like we have to be backwards compatible with whatever we do in the head end today. Actually, our hurdle, uh, I feel, is um, so supporting the RF, and there was another one. Oh, redundancy. People are like, well, what if it goes down? But then again, you could turn back and say, well, what if your node goes down? You don't have redundancy there either. Most people don't. Right. You know, they might have battery backup, 
to, oh, yeah, but I'm hitting all these data subscribers. It's still the same node. It's still the same number of homes passed per node. So um, you can look at it and say, our NPDF is much better with the digital link. Or you could do it uh, separate fibers. You know, you could do multiple fibers for redundant fiber. But uh, the complexity, that's why I think we, Cisco and a lot of industry focus on remote fi, not remote Mac fi. I know remote Mac fi is going to be part of Cable Labs as well. Put the least complexity out in the field, but be future proof for your hardware. As I see, as if, as, as if, I can never pronounce your name, as if. Soft. A soft, like a, <laughs> like a sophomore, <laughs> but a soft. <laughs> so as you mentioned, um, I want to be able to have um, something that's really reliable out in the field. And, you know, the complexity is not really out in the field. It's just the five, but you want to be having future proofs, meaning it's three, one upstream, downstream that you know you can utilize for the next 10 years. You know, it's not going to be something where you need to replace hardware. If I need to do an iOS update, it's much simpler with automation. Uh, granted, <laughs> you're not just updating 10 CMTSs. Now you're updating 10,000 RPDs. But you can do that in a round-robin fashion, much quicker. And maybe you're only updating the BGP part of it or, or an FPGA upload or something that's uh, very minuscule or minute uh, versus updating an entire CMTS. Yeah, I agree with John. I mean, one of the things that, that you nailed, I think, that is different is the end-to-end -end remote fi solution that operators need to be um, aware of. Um, you mentioned all the right things, but it's worth repeating. Um, auto band, right? Um, SCTE 55.1 or 55.2, um, the video core um, needs to, everything needs to be over IP, right? Because it's a digital link. So you don't have any RF combining in the head end. It happens by device. In Europe, uh, also, uh, there's FM signals, HMS signals. So all those things, leakage detection, um, those are all things that need to be there to make it end-to-end -end complete. Uh, and PNM is an important part of this as well. Um, Brady, I know that you're, uh, you're really well aware of that as, as well. But when you, when you start looking at, looking at the signals, uh, you, you were looking at it because you're receiving the RF at the head end. Well, you're not going to receive the RF at the head end. So you have to be able uh, to send those signals uh, a different way over IP from the remote by device. So you're able to monitor and manage that um, centrally, right? And uh, definitely allowing your technicians to still have the, the capabilities. They're, they're super capable people, um, but you want to make sure that, that their job is very similar to what it is today. Um, yeah, they can scan a QR code and they can install that. But at the end of the day, you want to be able to also provide uh, the key tools that allow them to, to manage uh, the, the technical part of their network. Um, so those are all things that make it uh, a complete solution, uh, as well as not to mention the CMTS core itself. Um, those things all exist today. But of course, the way they get transmitted between the head end and the node is not over an ARF link. Now it's over IP. So that, that's kind of the difference there. Yeah, there was one more one more uh, signal that we need to replicate from the RPD. Uh, I forgot, but I'm glad you mentioned FM, which is, you know, you wouldn't think many people carry FM, but I think in Germany they do. Radio frequencies, 88 to 108 on the cable plant. So that has to be figured out. Uh, 
us think that we should just get rid of FM and do digital satellite for radio, but hey, it is what it is. Um, the other one was CW carriers that are frequency agile, maybe for existing amplifier HECs. So we have to make sure that we have signals that we can produce if we still have, say, a node plus three, node plus five, level control or automatic gain control in those amplifiers that might not be able to monitor an OFDM signal. Uh, maybe they can't uh, understand a qualm signal, uh, but they still require, in essence, a CW, you know, something very stable and frequency agile. And typically, when you do a CW carry, the ADC is looking for 60 dB higher than a digital carry right next to it. So you have to make sure you have level flexibility as well. So that's something, another thing that's been asked. Yeah, I would I would take it to a different um, angle if you don't mind, Barry. I I think that you know a couple of uh, hurt not so much as hurdles but more like planning items would be uh, routing and the video architecture. So on the routing side, when you have to uh, send out the traffic from the Mac core to the remote Fi node, you need to most cases pass through aggregation routers. It could be you know spine and leaf switches on the way. There could be a layer two network or it could be a layer three network. Both would work, right? It really depends on the customer preferences and whatever uh, architecture they've got in their backbone. But it's important to remember this one and do the planning ahead of time to think what kind of protocols you want to deploy in your you know, IP backbone, right? This is what carries your, uh, your signals down to all of your nodes. So we need to make sure that you have the right protocols, you have the right network design, whether it's with or without link redundancy, as, as John mentions to, to the RPDs themselves. Uh, you need to make sure that all those switches and routers that sits on a way, they support the features that you need them to support, like potentially security features like MacSec or you know the multicast distribution that you require for your video uh, signal distribution. All of those need to be thought of and make sure that you have those. And also you would want to start thinking about how do you provision those, right? When you have so many switches and routers down there in your network and your you know, spine or leaf, you wanna be able to provision them, configure them the right way to make the signals flow from the Mac core to the RPD in the right way. And you wanna probably automate that, right? Automate the, all the CNCIN, the converged interface network, interconnect network, um, it's everything that sits between the Mac core and the remote Fi. You want to make, be sure that you know what you're putting in there. You can provision it, configure it remotely. You don't need to go again manually to configure each one of those devices. Um, the second item is you need to make sure you plan your video network accordingly, right? Uh, a lot of customers have got different types of net of, of uh, broadcast VOD, SCV type of requirements in terms of narrowcast and broadcast uh, video. And you want to make sure that you can, you know, in the standard, according to the remote FI, it supports, you know, VOD, SDV, broadcast, it's all supported. You want to make sure that your configuration is aligned, right, that you, you know, replicate the broadcast to the right nodes. you got multiple ad zones you need to think about. You need to make sure that all your video architecture is really well aligned with what you're planning to do with the DOCSIS and uh, high-speed data and voice type of architecture. And there are different approaches to that, right? There's um, an approach that says, okay, converge everything on one Mac core. There's another approach that say, okay, why don't you split the core, have a, a core for video, a core for DOCSIS. That's another acceptable approach, right? But each one needs to do the analysis, make sure they do the right planning by themselves. Wow. 
So I just know if I'm a cable operator, I want all three of you to be right beside me when I'm making my choices to <laughs> start deploying <laughs> RFI. But the one thing I really like that you just mentioned, Tal, is automation. So there, I mean, because there's so much complexity that goes into this, but if you can automate that, how, so how do you start going about automation, automating some of this actually to start simplifying the complexity that goes into RFI deployments? Is that, is that something that we can see on the horizon that it can, it can actually make it simpler for operators yeah. to get this stuff out there? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, all of us are working on those domains. So without mentioning specific products, we're all aware of the problem that, you know, so many different active devices down there in the network basically create, um, you know, a configuration nightmare. So we need to be able to automate the, you know, the configuration, the setting up, the uh, changing, you know, parameters and reconfiguration of those devices. And the only way to do that is through automation, right? So automation is the most basic way to say, okay, let's do a script that does CLI commands in a row, right? Potentially. But if you take it a level you know, above, then you would start talking about orchestration, right? Because you have the Mac core, you have the remote Fi, you have potentially the video uh, servers, the video, you know, the video cores, uh, the out of band servers, a lot of different components within the network that all of them need to work together which brings us to a point where we actually need orchestration, right? We need to make sure all those devices are working well together, passing parameters to one another, not you know, creating any contention in terms of configuration in the network. So this is where orchestration and provisioning tools uh, are starting to, to surface. And you know, I think all of us are, are kind of engaged in that front uh, at this time. Awesome. Yeah. And anyone else want to chime in on the automation side? Yeah, sure. Uh uh, I'll just compliment what what Tal said. I I think the industry, all of us are looking at different ways to orchestrate and automate. And virtualization, we covered that last time. This isn't a virtualization session, I guess. Uh, but virtualization approaches out there allow you to orchestrate in a pretty effective and efficient way. Um, we're all aware of those different tools and without sidetracking or, or rat holing in that domain. Again, um, I think having a virtualized approach uh, enables those things to enable the operator to um, remove the operator and uh, for making too many manual decisions and, and making it in a more efficient way that removes some of the error, errors that are associated with, with uh, such a, a mass configuration when you look at all the different elements that are out there. Um, so when you look at turning on a node, you scan the QR code, John mentioned that earlier, and something automatically initiates uh, its configuration that was predetermined um, and allows that service to come up almost automatically because its lineup from a video auto band DOCSIS perspective has already been done and associated with the MAC address of that remote FI node. And the whole trigger there is that it's been authenticated ahead of time. They know that that node exists and is authenticated. Registration, once that QR code is, is seen, right, in the back office, enables it to get the right configuration with the right apps, with the right type of out of band, with the right DOCSIS uh, server group configuration, and basically from then just letting modem starting to register. And, and that's something that exists today, and we're all working on it, um, as, as Tom mentioned. And, and that really removes a lot of that complexity away um, and abstracts it away from the operator in, in, a, in a way to deploy these things in a really scalable way as well. Awesome. Thank you. So if we were to look a couple years down the road, 
two years, three years? Where, where do you guys see RFI technology going? Is, is, does it get smaller? Does it get pushed out even further into the plant? I mean, do we have any visibility on this? I'd like to see it scale up. I'd like to see a steady state. I think 2018 is a, is a tipping point year um, for the industry. Um, you know, you got Cisco, Aris, and Harmonic on the call over here. Um, I think we, I hope we could all agree that, that RemoteFi solves real world problems. And um, if you think back to SETE, uh, there was a RemoteFi uh, session the day before the show started. Um, I was lucky enough to participate with uh, with uh, John Chapman and Tom Coonan and and, um, and uh, Nokia in a panel, and we were expecting about 100 150 people, and and, the, and all these folks showed up, and it was at least three times that. Um, so there's a huge interest for that, and I think RemoteFi, first of all, needs to be deployed in a scalable fashion in terms of how much of that footprint is actually going to use the technology. So I see that as a big Thing that happens in um, in 2018, um, I believe that Jeff Hainan from SNL Kagan uh, put out a report recently that showed that there's a shift from traditional HFC uh, nodes to to remote FI style nodes, and has a um, an estimate of how much will that will happen over the course of the next few years as well. Um, so I think the technology is really solid with full spectrum. It'll last a really long time, and uh, hopefully we see a lot of uh, that inflection point somewhere during 2018. Anyone else care to hazard a guess? I'll take a, a risky guess. Um, maybe not a popular one, but I think in two or three years from today, we'll see a, a great variety of solutions out there in the market. I'm sure we'll be widely deployed with remote FI. I'm sure integrated CCAP is still going to be very strong, potentially number one type of solution out there in the market. We'll see more remote Mac and Fi. Potentially, we'll see more remote Mac, remote Fi sitting next to one another. I think the, we're headed for bifurcation in general, and I think that in a few years from now, we'll see a little bit of everything. Um, remote Fi is is an efficient solution uh, for a lot of uh, a lot of customers. A lot of cases. Um, you know, it's very helpful for customers looking uh, to, again, push the, the fiber down closer to the subscriber, or it could also be very efficient in case of rural areas where you have smaller hub sites and, you know, more remote locations where you could just place a node and feed an entire, I don't know, what, I don't know a group of homes potentially, or you could just put, a, you know, a, a remote file shelf, which is another viable solution, right? It can sit inside a small hub where the actual Mac core is gonna be sitting inside a, a head end, a centralized head end. Years from now, we'll see, we'll see just about everything out there, right? We'll see remote files in nodes, in shelves. We'll see remote Mac and files out there in many cases, you know, and, and a lot of integrated CCAP that will keep living for many, many more years. Okay, so you, both you and John have mentioned Mac Fi during the conversation, and I've also heard other uh, discussions of, of Mac Fi. And, it's my understanding. I mean, the Mac Five. We're just we're basically pushing the intelligence of the CCAP into the RFI, if I understand that correct. And you can tell me if I'm wrong. But um, what what solution is Mac Five solving over just a standard RFI? 
Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a good yeah, it's a good question. I don't, I don't feel like you know being the one, the only one to talk, but yeah. So remote Mac and Fi basically takes the Mac functionality, put that inside the node along with the Fi. Um, it tells a few things, right? There are some few benefits to that. Um, one of the benefits is that the effect you place the Mac and the Fi closer to the subscriber, right? Again, you would send out digital links of IP down to the node, and then you will do the Mac and Fi functionality and spread it down to the home on smaller service groups, right? So you get the benefits of digital links going to that node, right, with higher, higher throughput. Um, the fact that the Mac and the Fi are located together inside the node allows you to provide better, um, you know, less light latency in terms of the services because the scheduler, which sits in the Mac and the Fi level, sits together, so that potentially prevents some uh, latency issues that may arise from a remote Fi type of architecture. And this is something that a lot of discussions um, are raising today because of the concern about the gaming community, right? About uh, the gaming uh, requirements for, for latency within the network. So that, that's, that potentially solves this problem. Um, another, you know, there are simplifications that come with remote Mac and Fi, so for example, the fact that the Mac sits next to the Fi reduces the need for the timing server that we just mentioned. So one less item out of your uh, off your architecture, off your uh, ecosystem. So that's 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 nice, right? Um, there's uh, no need for the actual protocol, the DEPI protocol, the GCP protocol between the head end and the node. You would they would all be sitting together. You only have IP, right? You have IP down to the node. From that on, that's that's RF. There is no need for yet another protocol, which is the DEPI or remote FI uh, protocol and spec that is now emerging. So some people, you know, look at it as a simpler, a more simple solution to deploy because you just put a box in there, turn it on, bam, it works. It doesn't there is no dependency between the node and the Mac core head in sitting inside the head end. To some extent, you can think of it as a simpler architecture, but it's got its own challenges, like you know power and heat you know when you put the mac down there it's much more uh it's much more complicated to manage the heat dissipation so pros and cons to each one of them right yeah and uh, i would add to that that we'd like to see the remote mac fi um you know for it to get standardized right now it's not a standard solution there's a technical report that describes conceptually what what tal mentioned um, but it, we need a. You can't replace remote MacFi's today with other remote MacFi solutions. So the standard is is, is um, having a standard solution there. I think is important. So uh, you have interoperability as well. Um, so that's a good point. Uh, there's something that's usually overlooked in, in terms of the latency that's worth mentioning since we brought up remote MacFi. Doxis has a embedded latency with best effort services related to basically the scheduler, right? And John Chapman actually covered this in the remote FI session uh, at SCTE, which is integrated CMTSs and remote FI have the same latency uh, uh, as we are familiar today within the distances that most uh, Doxis operations are deployed in, which is 100 miles or less. Um, and, and the reason that is, is, of course, you have the you have to take into account that the Doxis maps need to traverse, even if there's no distance, they have to cover a certain period of time uh, of, of, um, of allocated time slots. And you have to wait for the modem to reply to that. Even if there's no propagation delay, you still have this back and forth. So typically, the minimum latency, whether it's remote fire or remote Mac fire, you still have uh, about five to six milliseconds uh, best case latency no matter what. Um, even if the Mac is sitting one foot away, 
from from uh, from the modem itself. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the standard. And I think we're all participating and, and keeping well aware of that. So th that was one of the, the big um, issues or perceived issues was distance and latency. Our own testing to prove that with remote fi, you know, even though the Mac was potentially 2000 kilometers away, there's 2000 kilometers away. We simulated that with real fiber and also a, a latency simulator um, that we were able to still basically reach line rate with DOCSIS 3.0 modems. Now, if you're talking about, and this is upstream speed, right? Because request all the way down to the Mac, because that's where the Mac scheduler is and the upstream scheduling, and then send the downstream map to say, all right, now you can send on the upstream. So that upstream speed is what the problem is. It's not downstream. Um, but we were able to show that with DOCSIS 3.0 doing uh, MTC mode, multiple transmit channel set, continuous concatenation fragmentation, that basically we can get line rate on the upstream, even with, with a 3.0 modem. Now, if it's a 2.0 modem, yeah, you might not be, get better than, say, 3 megabits per second if it is super long distance. Concatenation. But my feeling is if I'm going remote fi, I'm offering higher speeds, why would I be relying on a 2.0 modem to begin with? You know, and if I had a 2.0 modem in the customer's house, maybe that 2.0 modem was embedded in the set-top box. So that's why it was still a 2.0 modem. It's per second in the upstream. They only need what? 300K or whatever they did for their set-top box? You know, it's just DSG, DOCSIS set-top gateway. So um, the, the distance-wise, the, the argument on distance, hold a lot of water. That the gaming and latency, I think that one still needs to be vetted out and proven. That is there really an issue with gaming and latency with a remote FI solution, uh, or is there some other option or feature I can implement to turn around that request grant a little bit faster? Yeah, you could always put it on a UGS flow. I mean, that's what we do with voice. Um, but and, and we also have to understand it's a uh, if it's actually impactful to the experience. So far, it hasn't seemed so, but obviously that that's a that will depend on the distances we're we're looking at, and they're going to be pretty extreme distances. They're going to be much greater distances than what CMTSs are deployed uh, for today. We're talking, you know, multiple hundreds of miles uh, between the uh, the scheduler and and the, the remote by uh, and the modem effectively, which is uh, we the, could we could envision a data center in Central America in, in Central USA feeding remote five devices across the entire United States. So okay. I sense I sense that um, there's going to be a lot of future debate between MacFi and RemoteFi. This seems to be a, uh, a an interesting topic. And it's very interesting that gamers <laughs> are, are the ones that are noticing it the most. <laughs> well, there's speculation that they'll notice the uh, one millisecond extra latency over 100 miles, uh, which is what it is, right? The speed of of light over fiber is 0.8 milliseconds per 100 miles, and there's speculation. I still think that Doxus still has the capabilities with with uh, with UGS flows to manage gamers. We could always put them on that type of um, um, service flow. But I want to mention something that Tal mentioned, and I, I think it's important: is um, the the power. Right? We we have a power budget for these things, the, the nodes that go up on the pole, and and uh, really, it's really hard to bring in more power into the field. So uh, technology, you mentioned how technology will evolve over the next few years. 
probably the remote Mac 5 piece will come down in, in their power consumption. Um, and, and of course, remote 5 today, I, I, I'd like to see a bake off, but clearly I think that uh, remote 5 is much less power consuming when you, when you look at uh, the power specs of, of, our, of our node solutions that are available today. Uh, I think that's an important thing to mention because you can't all of a sudden show up and, you know, on the head end, you could always bring in more power, cost more money, but you have that opportunity. In the field, you just don't have that opportunity, right? So um, that, that's an important point that Tom mentioned. Awesome. Yeah, we could expand on that actually even more, you know, if you want to take it another another step up. Um, the the fact that you keep the Mac functionality within the head end allows you to, you know, expand it, change it, change the devices that support the Mac processing, right? So, for example, Doxus 3.1, a lot of the changes that Doxus 3.1 introduced were done in the Mac level, right? If you would have put a chip, uh, you know, down the line in the in the node, and then you wanted to upgrade to Doxus 3.1, or now when you want to upgrade to FDX going to be pretty difficult to do, you know, this next technology jump to FDX, for example, without actually changing the device down there in the node. If you're keeping the Mac within the head end, you're much, it's much easier for you to actually do that change, right? You're able to change the devices, virtualize them to some extent, move them, you know, around and because it's all in the head end. Once it's in the field, the, you know, the, the churn, the fact that you need to take it out and put it back in and replace a device, it's much more expensive, much more complicated, right? Perfect intro to the, the last question for today, <laughs> Tao, was um, uh, final closing question. What are your thoughts on where remote Phi and will full duplex doxes, what, will we see that happen? Will it occur in the next few years? Uh, what are your th thoughts on that, uh, Tal? We'll start with you since you did the lead in on it. Okay, that was an ordered one, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, FTX is is a is a huge promise, right? We can't wait to see it happen. It's uh, it's going to be a very big uh, you know relief to a lot of the upstream requirements from our customers. Um, FTX will materialize in the remote FIs or remote Mac and FIs, uh, both both of those. And, uh, you know, it's going to happen in the next few years. It's going to be a little bit longer than, you know, I think the, than the advertisements would say, right? Uh, you still need to manufacture the, uh, the chips, the ASICs for the modems. You need to make sure the, the, uh, that the remote files, remote Mac and files will support this type of technology. A lot of testing needs to get done. Um, this is an example. Doxa Street at one spec was sealed, you know, a couple of years ago already. We're still, you know, we're just seeing, starting to see the, the vast deployments of Doxus 3.1 uh, right now all over the world, right? It's just, you know, it's, it was just starting in the last few months or so. Uh, so it takes a while to adopt this new technology and uh, really deploy that widely. But it's going to happen for sure for, for FDX, uh, considering the uh, requirements of that technology, which would mean a node plus zero type of architecture, uh, fiber deep type of uh, deployment of the node and uh, its logic. Okay, John, your thoughts? I mean, let's take a step back and ask, you know, what is FTX solving and why do we need it? Um, we know Doxus 3.1 increased upstream to 204 megahertz, which gives us more 3.1 upstream. But then FTX came around and said, you know, how do we get to one gig on the upstream? And we're not going to be able to do it with Doxus 3.1 uh, across the board and efficiently share that, that speed. 
I might be able to get one gig for one customer, but I need to sign up, you know, 300 customers sharing that same spectrum. Uh, so how do I do that? And one of the ways is get rid of the diplex filter, do a full duplex doxis, introduce something called echo cancellation, uh, new technology. It, it kind of, I'd liken it back to our feed forward days of uh, our C-Core amplifiers, right? Sample the signal and delay at 180 degrees uh, at a phase so you could uh, cancel the signal. Um, but it's sorted to that nature. And I don't know if they'll call it DOCSIS 4.0 or DOCSIS 5.0 or file, file, you know, iPhones, DOCSIS X or whatever we're going to call it. But it is going to be new hardware. So the, the modem might need an echo cancellation. The node is going to need echo cancellation. The actives need echo cancellation. You need smart uh, functionality that the modems can transmit while the CMTS looks at other modems to see where the interference groups are. So it has to be able to bundle that. So sort of automation again, uh, so you can bundle or cluster devices into uh, non-interfering groups. Uh, it's called full duplex, meaning simultaneous downstream and upstream, which seems really crazy when you're an RF guy. How can I transmit at 500 megahertz on the downstream uh, or, or receive 500 megahertz on downstream and transmit on the upstream at 500 megahertz? You know, how can I do that? Well, there are ways to do it. So it's kind of interesting where these things are going, but we're trying to introduce this to solve the problem of offering one gig service on the upstream. Uh, Tal, you mentioned about DOCSIS 3.1. Yeah, it's being widely deployed now for downstream, but I don't really see any upstream. I mean, no one really has a spectrum. Anyone that's updating cable plants today is going to 85 megahertz on the upstream. So I might better do five to 42 megahertz for single carrier qualms, ATDMA, and 42 to 85, I might do a small block of OFDMA. And then I can aggregate all that together and maybe offer 100, 200 meg service on the upstream. But until we get an application or competition to push us on the upstream speed, um, I don't know what's going to really push us for the FDX. You know, something's got to push us. And it, that could turn around tomorrow. This new application could come out tomorrow Then home security, high definition home security. I don't know. Um, even on the cloud and the virtual side, we could sit there and say and be prognosticators and say, it'll be five years before I see this. Well, it could take someone like Amazon tomorrow to buy Altice USA and say, hey, we're going to go cloud and just kind of rip everything out and go cloud because they have that infrastructure. That's the way they would do business. Amazon and Google, they rather have big data service centers um, and not deal with the CMTSs and stuff like that. So, I mean, we, we can try to guess. <laughs> and, and and I know the hardware is not going to go anywhere soon. It's return on investment. Um, but it wouldn't be hard for us to start implementing these new technologies on a uh, as-needed basis. I have a business park that's opening up down the road. It's Greenfield. I'm going to do a fiber as deep as I can. You asked about how deep. Uh, node plus zero. I could foresee that going fiber remote five taps eventually, you know, going down that the node is only feeding eight customers. You're just going to get closer and closer. It's still to the home. You know, eight people sharing that node versus one person sharing a node. It's still cheaper. So I, I hear a resounding, comes down to money. a resounding yes from Tao. A really kind of, uh, I'm not so sure from John. Asaf, you're going to be the tiebreaker. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think putting your money on speed is always a, a good bet and it's pr proven out uh all the time and, and so and putting your money on hfc so fdx is a base is a bet on on uh cable networks and it's a bet on speed 
and um, and I think uh, we'll get there. And uh, and it's a good bet. And and in terms of, uh, I think it's funny, John. I don't think it's 4.0 or 5.0. I think it's an appendix and 3.1. Appendix right. F. It's, uh, it's, it's a appendix F. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a simple change, right? It's only full duplex. It's a, it's an appendix. Um, what happens when I have appendicitis? Yeah. <laughs> You'll choose which appendix to remove. Um, so I think that it will happen, and uh, we're investing a lot as an industry to make sure that it does happen because it, it gives extra life to the investment we've made into the infrastructure and the, of the cable plant and and, um, and competing against fiber to the home. And, and the competition is symmetric speeds, right? We still have have customers that need symmetric speeds and need to have that upstream bandwidth to compete against that, and that's FTTH is that you can you could sell not only uh, high speed downstream but have symmetric upstreams, and th this is what will give that that lifeblood. Doxis 3.1, by the way, does already an amazing job of giving upstream uh, speeds if you have the spectrum, if you have the spectrum, and FDX uh, basically gives you more spectrum and the ability to simultaneously transmit over those same frequencies. So it gives you more upstream uh, speeds. Obviously, there there is some trade-offs uh, in the downstream and, and making a mid-split decision or a high-split decision of, of where that happens. But without question, it'll happen. Uh, I do agree that, uh, this, first of all, we're going in record speed uh, as an industry in terms of specifying it, in terms of the folks making the, the chipsets out there but then they have to be put into products and, and tested and put, put out there, and it takes time. And, and we can look at the history of how long it takes for that to happen and, and how long it takes to scale deployments for that to happen. Um, and um, But I, I guarantee you folks are going – all of us are going as quickly as we can in the, uh, in the um, direction of FDX as well. Yeah, I'm going to cast my vote as a yes, FDX is going to happen because I have to recover from my uh, lack of support for Doxus 3.1, and it has done so well. So I do believe FDX will happen, or at least that's what I'm thinking now. So, folks, I'm going to wrap up this podcast or this uh, hangout and podcast. Tal, Asaf, and John, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an exceptional amount of material and great topic that we've covered. Um, our next episode is going to be on cable access SDN orchestration in, in February, I believe, with John and Tal, if we can uh, get Tal to join us again. Cable access SDN orchestration, which, Tal, you already mentioned a little bit, is a tool that helps us manage all of this complexity that we're dealing with now. So we do our best to bring our audience great technical content every month. If, you, if you're watching us, please click subscribe on YouTube, or you can listen to the audio version by getting us on iTunes or uh, the Play Store with your favorite podcaster. So thank you so much for watching, and thank all of our panelists for joining. Again, everyone, have happy Friday, and have a great weekend. So long. All right, take care. Thank you.